Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Lately, I've been worried about Dad. He was always cranky, but lately, something seems different. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. I talked to my husband, Jared. We, we both agree that sometimes Dad seems disoriented and he doesn't make any sense. That system is set up so that the crooked politicians can make sure they get somebody in that's not, you know, part of what we're doing. We've also had some reports of inappropriate behavior. And she said I made inappropriate advances. Take a look. You take a look. Look at her. Look at her words. You tell me what you think. I don't think so. I don't think. I hate to move him to a new place, but I'm worried about Dad on his own. Now there's a choice. Autocrat Acres offers round-the-clock assisted bullying and monitored megalomania. If your parent is having trouble being a petty tyrant on his own, he can get the help he needs. I know Dad is happier at Autocrat Acres, and he's making new friends. Get him out of here. Throw him out. Well, maybe not. And now our director of nursing, Colin McEnroe. It's good to know there are facilities like that anyway. Yes, welcome to the nose. Uh, and we have an unusually configured nose today. We usually have three people in the studio with me. We have two people in the studio with me today and one person someplace else. Allow me to explain. In studio with me is Teresa Kramer, a writer uh, and the editor of eContent Magazine and the founding editor of The Cut, an online magazine for disgruntled young adults of Connecticut. Uh, James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College and by ISDN Connection, that's what we call it in radio, from NPR in New York City. Kate Russian uh, is a poet and writer who teaches in the Amistad Freedom um, tra- Trail Project. She was our, she was scheduled to be on the show today, and she's in the city, and we thought, you know what? It'll give us kind of that cosmopolitan Al Smith dinner New York feel that we're really going for. So hi, Kate. Hi there, Colin. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hello. Kate. Uh, Let me tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to begin with just talking about something that you very easily can access. You don't even have to go out of your house to do it, uh, which will please some of you. We're going to talk about three short films that you can watch on your computer or other uh, connected device. We're going to talk a little bit about the status of short films, too, uh, and what pleasures they have to offer us uh, later in the show. We will talk about the Al Smith dinner last night, uh, about a comedy routine that fell notably flat. Uh, We'll also talk about the unpacking of the word nasty uh, as it's been used over the last couple of days uh, and the uh, maybe reclaiming of the word nasty. I guess it got reclaimed a while ago. I just I missed it. Anyway, uh, all of that, plus other kinds of side observations as well. Uh, We are going to begin with the short with three short films. One um, is called uh, it's called The Stutterer, right? That's what it's called. Um, And the other another one. Well, we'll start with The Stutterer. But before we do that. We should um, talk a little bit about the short film itself. And James, since you are our um, movie expert in so many different ways, I mean, short films, it should be a really good time for short films, right? I mean, there's a lot of ways to make them. Uh, There's a lot of ways to distribute them, too, or get people to see them. Um, Although I feel as though they still live in the shadows. They do, really. Um, It's a shame. Uh, I mean, the big jump, of course, was digital uh, capability, which 
made it possible for short films to be uh, to be made at a reasonable cost, and people could get editing software that would enable them to really distill a short film because the tricky part, of course, of making a short film is to make a short film that tells a story with um, a sort of completeness but without going overboard and trying to include too much. It's one of those distillations like a beautiful poem um, or a, a short, a written short story and it needs to be within a certain space and those new tools have been great but the real problem is, to me, is how people see them. We, like at Sydney Studio, we do occasionally show short films, but it's relatively rare. People don't come for short films. In the old days, people used to show, a theater would show a short film before a feature film, and people would come for it. Nowadays, they would tend to call you up and find out, you know, when what time does the feature start, and mm -hmm. they'd miss the short film. Um, but the other way that we show short films is in a pro program compilation, maybe something like the Oscar-nominated shorts. But the the problem to me with that is that it's like hearing a, a, a sort of cavalcade of stories too quickly, too much together, and it's hard to change the mood. One of the things I found when um, um, Colin sent out that list of the three short films was that I watched each one separated by some time and uh, although I don't think it's ideal to watch it on a computer or on a TV, I'd love to see them on the big screen. Mm -hmm. However, it was really beguiling to actually be drawn into those films and to have to spend some time afterwards thinking about them and realizing what an extraordinary skill it is for somebody to come together with a story that really grabs you and moves you in in maybe 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is. It's a great skill, and you realize how little we get exposed to it. And I, the three, all three of the films, I thought, were fascinating for different reasons, but they really drew me in. We're going to put links to all of those films, both at wnpr.org slash Colin and the link to the show, uh, but also on our Facebook page. They're probably already up there um, at the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page on Facebook, which I am currently boycotting. Not boycotting. I'm taking like a hiatus, a Yom Kippur kind of time of atonement uh, and uh, just not being on social media. Uh, anyway, uh, before I, we hear Teresa and Kate uh, on this film, I'm going to play just a little clip. Uh, this is from the, this short film called The Stutterer. I'll send it up a little bit. Uh, it's you know, don't worry, I won't spoil it. Um, but it's about a young man who is who has a terrible, terrible speech impediment, one that really thwarts his ability even to get at basic kinds of statements out. And I think we uh, you're going to hear just a little bit of uh, what that's like for him. Music, 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 music. The pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Music. The pleasure. Counting, 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 counting. Mm. 
I like that one. So that's this young man and his father. Uh, what you hear at the beginning, uh, Kate, is him mentally ramping up to this statement. He's mentally, in, in his thoughts, he's rehearsing what it is that he's going to say so we can hear the beginnings of that statement. And then it transitions so sharply in his uh, ability not to be, uh, his ability, his inability to just translate that into what he wants to say. So, Teresa, uh, I don't know, what did you hear there? Or what did you see in this film? Well, the stutterer of the three movies, what, the stutterer was my favorite. It was also the longest I think it sort of found the sweet spot because the other ones were you know in the single digits they were six minutes seven minutes something like that whereas this one was almost 20 minutes long and it was you had enough time to understand the characters a little better actually grow to like them and care about them a little bit um it wasn't as gimmicky I I wasn't that great the other movie was called it never happened or never happened it never happened and um I just wasn't that crazy about that one. It was a little bit too gimmicky for me. It was less about the people and more about this idea. Um, But the stutterer at 20 minutes, you really got to understand the character, feel for him, and then actually be excited for him when you get to the end. Um, Kate, as a poet, there's there's a lot in this movie that's about words. This young man who is very soulfully played with limpid eyes by a young actor named Matthew Needham, I believe is his name. Uh, but we see him. He has some kind of job that I think involves doing posters or something, but with like linotype or hot lead or, I mean, sort of, you know, old-fashioned lead pieces. That He's constantly working with those things uh, even as he struggles to express himself. And, and so here's this guy who has an affinity for words, uh, a need to get certain words out, uh, and uh, he communicates back and forth with this very interesting young woman uh, on Facebook. Uh, but we're aware of the fact that if and when they ever meet, uh, they're going to have to deal with at least one fact, which is his stuttering. I, I don't know, as a poet, that must have seemed poignant to you. Yes, it it really did. I was very moved by the film um, as well. Uh, and I, I, was, I found that the most compelling of the three films also. And I love the way that uh, they use the typography and the um, posters uh, as part of the set. And you see the, uh, the, the individual letters and you see them, him setting the letters. And it, and it, it did read to me uh, very impressionistically. You know, we have all the close-ups of his face. We see him typing to this woman he's never met on Facebook. And then we see him surrounded by the tools of his trade. I thought it was really quite lovely. I mean, James, the the, the, the struggle of the short film is it really can only handle one idea. It can handle multiple ideas. Uh, although this one kind of comes close. As Teresa says, it's a little bit longer. It's got a chance at least to explore multiple relationships. Yeah, I think its length definitely helps, but I think there's another aspect that makes this really work, which is the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, the soundtrack is a really extraordinary um, sort of subtle mix of things that are signals to him, like, for instance, when he gets a message uh, coming through on the computer, there's a sound that, it, that you know, suddenly changes the direction of the of, of the story. And there's also the fact that amid his stuttering, you're hearing his thoughts spoken. He's speaking his thoughts. And so it it starts out very subtly at the beginning of the film. And by the end of the film, it's almost a cacophony of, of, of thoughts that are reeling through his mind and things like, you know, reciting the alphabet and, you know, some sort of mnemonic to to get in his head that he can then express. 
And it really draws you into that sense of the frustration that he was feeling that, you know, he had this this observation to make. And even with his most patient listener, his father, uh, he's he's really uh, trying so hard and the soundtrack is bringing you the viewer into an, into that process of trying to get that thought out and i think by the end of the film that there's enough length in the film that the sound has created this sort of thing it's it's almost like a cocoon i found uh, that i wasn't paying attention to other things i also found uh you know because he's not speaking for much of the movie his facial acting <laughs> yes, yeah. was so much more important my boyfriend and i were laughing out loud often at his sort of uh frustrated or um facial expressions or his sort of goofy looks of joy that he yeah. was sort of emitting um you know it that became such a big part of it and i think that's part of why his character drew me in more of some of the other it, yeah. than in some yeah. of the other films because his, I mean, he just had these goofy, really adorable, sweet, sad expressions throughout the entire thing, and he really drew yeah. you in that way. It, it is. It made me think that, first of all, I mean, I've seen other uh, performances in which stuttering is used in a way that kind of suggests uh, quite a bit of pathos. I've never been entirely comfortable with the movie A Fish Called Wanda, where stuttering is really essentially played for laughs. And Michael Palin's character might be ultimately a very sympathetic uh, character, but there's something a little bit uh, unnerving about that. But certainly uh, Derek Jacoby, I think has played at least two and maybe three people with speech impediments. Uh, his incredible performance is Claudius in I, Claudius, uh, where he has a, a terrible stammer. I think on stage he played Alan Turing, who also uh, had a speech defect. And doesn't he have one in Dead Again, too? Does he? Have, I think he actually, uh, yeah, I think I think he actually has right. one there. So, yeah. I mean, But, Kate, one of the things that you see there, I think, is that this isn't I don't know. I mean, we probably minimize stuttering. It seems like just a kind of disfluency that, you know, that anybody might be familiar with. I don't think we quite understand, although we are made to understand in this film, how incredibly isolating it might be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I must say, just uh, something else that struck me about the film is that that the guy is is sympathetic, but he is not attractive he's not uh presented in a in a, in a movie star or model kind of way i really like that I part he was really of, cute <laughs> he's very cute but he wasn't he in in a in a in a in a Kate's not into slightly scruffy dudes. way <laughs> and and then he gets himself in a mess and right before you know he's he's struggling to meet the girl and he gets he's very anxious in the overall nose. yeah yeah, yeah. it's yes. not just the it's not just the stuttering he's just anxious in general he's you yeah. know throwing away the flowers he got for her, taking off the tie rethinking of his outfit the whole thing i think that actually right. you see that his whole life is about indecision he doesn't he doesn't know what to say he has trouble speaking but he also doesn't know what to do and he doubts everything about himself yes yes that's it, it, exactly and it's a sort of uh, a sort of a chaos that is that is there that he's trying to resolve and trying to find some sort of path out of it. All right, we're going to take a little break. As I say, all of these films, very easy for you to watch this weekend. Uh, we'll have them up on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, also at wnpr.org slash Colin, where all of our shows go to live on through all eternity. We'll take a break. We're going to t- talk about two other short films when we come back. Uh, and then we'll take another little break, and we'll come back and talk about the Al Smith dinner last night.
All right. Uh, here on the news today, we're spending a few time, a few minutes discussing the glories of short films uh, and, the, and the, the the tiny pleasures of them as well. With James Hanley from Trinity Cine Studio uh, and Kate Russian, uh, the wonderful poet, and Teresa Kramer uh, from the Cut and E Content magazine. So uh, we're going to go. We we watched three of them, and and we really may, we'll make it very easy for you to watch them too. Um, the second one we watched is something called Never Happened. Uh, Teresa, you've already said that you don't like this one as much. Um, so we'll let you kind of lead it off here. No, well, so this takes place in some kind of not too far distant future, as they say on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, although that's not really played up, but it ha- it, there's a sci-fi element to it. And I, it's a hard movie for us to talk about without spoiling, right? Well, are we worried about spoiling an eight-minute movie? <laughs> That's what I was wondering. I'm not really sure. You're not worried? Okay. I'm not worried. Because because the ending was my main problem with it. I mean, I'm not not really into sort of dystopian future stuff. Like, the the idea is that these people, they've sort of synced up their brains to their phone and can, you know, erase things they don't want, you know, in their brain anymore. And at the end... My boyfriend and I watched this together and we were just looking at each other like, are we supposed to think his wife has done the same thing when yes, he gets we, home? Yes, we are. We are. Yeah. But because it's so short, we're. I'm like, I don't know if that's – yeah, I, I was just confused because there's so little to go on in such a short movie that I was just not 100% sure what we were supposed to understand from that. All right. We are taking the risk of slightly maybe spoiling an eight-minute movie that very few of you are probably going to go seek out anyway. But, but Kate, so one of the things this movie does explore – I think when we think about erasing memory – we think about erasing memory of trauma, right? We think, I mean, if we want to erase something, we want to uh, erase something that made us very, very sad or was horrifying to go through. Uh, and, I mean, that's really being explored in the real world of science these days. Um, I, we don't really think about erasing memory as this kind of convenient appliance that we would have in our pocket. And we also don't think about erasing memory of something that was actually rather pleasurable that we now feel guilty about. I mean, to me, that's the thing that makes this uh, an interesting eight-minute concept that, in fact, this is something that wasn't horrible to go through. It's just rather inconvenient to have it in your brain afterwards. Well, yeah. I mean, I agree with, with uh, Teresa. I, I thought it was rather gimmicky um, because, you know, basically they're talking about getting away with cheating uh, using technology. And I was very interested in the the way technology was used in both of the films, The Stutterer and Never Happened. Because as as a writer, you know, I realized that dealing with today's technology is an issue. And so if I were to write a short story, I would set it in the in the pre social media media era so that I wouldn't have to deal with it. But the seeing these two films helped me uh, think about that possibility of bringing technology into the central uh, plot point of, of 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 a narrative. I found that quite interesting. Well, James, because you're a reliable uh, source of suspicion about the commodification of <laughs> <laughs> and corporatization of everything, <laughs> including our, our emotional lives. Um, there must be some part of you that's intrigued by this notion or appalled by this notion anyway, that with a push of a button, you could get rid of something that you really should have to sit with and feel bad about. Well, I mean, I'm certainly intrigued, and I think it's inevitable at some point. Um, I think this the, the movie itself is obviously a sort of device movie. It's like a science fiction short, and it's clever for what it does, um, not particularly surprising. But one of the things it made me think about was the whole nature of the fluidity of memory, the unreliability of witnesses, mm-hmm. 
you know, and how uh, every time you remember something, you're sort of managing that memory and turning it into something slightly different that maybe favors you or maybe favors somebody else. And that's going on in sort of normal human existence. And we're developing all of these technical abilities um, that that really enhance that the nature of sort of unreliability in a way. So that you you begin to lose the connection between what was a real story, what really happened. I mean, when they use this device uh, in the film, in the short film, you know, what do, what do they remember? I mean, mm-hmm. what is real and what is not? Which is kind of like goes to the heart of what being a witness is and whether you remember what you saw for real or whether you changed it in some way. And we pretty, we're pretty sure now that people do change it. That's the human condition. And in the case of this film... It's sort of like bringing a device into focus that, you know, there are so many devices that look science fiction. But in fact, you know, the idea of, for instance, embedding chips and connecting people's brains, downloading stuff eventually, you know, you could think, well, everybody's going to be involved in this massive industry of reconstructing what is in your brain. And so it, the the movie was kind of amusing for that. And I liked I liked the sense of the film being so cavalier about it. You know, it's just like haul out the cell phones and mm-hmm. set this gadget going and, and okay, you know, we can go on with our lives. It's a sort of like a a, a, a seven-minute celebration of total falsehood. And Yeah, go ahead. It's also sort of about – I don't know if I'd call it a celebration of falsehood so much as it is um, – pointing out what memory does for us, right? That if you don't have that memory and you don't have the guilt, you're just going to keep making the same mistake over and over again. And as inconvenient as your memory might be at certain points and as much as you might want to stop feeling that guilt, it's what keeps most of us from, you know, being terrible people. I think that's a great yeah, point. I mean, this point. this, I this yeah. movie really, I mean, Santayana's quote about those who cannot remember history are condemned to repeat it means something closer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was talking about primitive yeah. pri- tribes who really didn't have the ability to create history, uh, so they couldn't, in fact, learn from it. Uh, and, and I think that that's there. I also, I would recommend with this movie, um, which is called, once again, Never Happened by Mark Slutsky. Easy to find, and we'll have it. It's like watch it for eight minutes and then talk about it for 20 minutes with somebody else. Uh, because there's a lot there. There's a lot there about even just the nature of consciousness. You can get into from there thought experiments. For example, if you could remove from, say, I don't know, Charles Manson's brain, the, the whole part where he did this horrible thing, well, then who would he be at that point? I mean, would he be cleansed of what he'd done? You know, where does consciousness really reside and where does uh, our understanding of who we really are reside? Uh, and, and, you know, when you start doing it that way, if you start thinking about it that way, you might go some interesting places. I would agree the movie itself is just a diving board into that pool. All right. We just have a few minutes left to talk about Borrowed Time. Uh, and uh, Borrowed Time is a short film by two Pixar animators who very specifically wanted to make something that, as they say, kind of contested the notion of animation being a genre, one for children specifically. We really wanted to make something that was a little bit more adult in the thematic choices and show that animation could be a medium to tell any sort of story. This is the story. Uh, of a uh, of, of a man and a son. They are cowboys, or they are at least uh, participants in the wild, wild west. And um, Kate, this is a another story about memory. Really, it's about about uh, a boy who grows up haunted by the memory of the horrifying death <laughs> yeah. of his father. It was yeah, like Mufasa dark. and Simba all over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah w- w- watch it before you show it to your children. Right. I, I don't know, Kate. What did you What did you make of it? Well, I was captivated by it. I I was um I was I was really 
uh, taken by it because I haven't seen, you know, the other full length of films that deal with um, with the darker subjects. I did see um, the the animation by the uh, Mexican filmmaker that uh, drew on the day Day of the Dead uh, mm-hmm. imagery, mm-hmm. but I was really captivated by this different take on a Western. You know, there are these, you know, a tough sheriff and his son uh, fighting bad guys. And then it it very quickly evolves into this very um, heart-wrenching story about about death, about love, about a love between a father and a son. Again, I just want to go a little faster because we're about to run into a a fundraising break here, Kate. This is about six or seven minutes long, uh, James. I guess I question the, whether this is the only... I mean, I think you can make animated movies that very easily hold the attention of both audiences without necessarily having to... I don't know. I, this was well, the one I didn't like. Yeah, I, I, I didn't particularly like it either. I mean, and I think you can do extraordinary things with animation and content. And and the um, Japanese anime is is an example of that. The Spirited Away, for yeah. example. Um, uh, it, I found this to be kind of glib and uh, commercial-like in a way. Um, And I was actually put off, too, by one of the comments on the page where it appears where somebody said, oh, this was so great. I only hope that they go back and write the full-length version of it. And I thought, no, please. (laughs) This short film, it's okay. I mean, it's beautifully done. It's captivating in a sort of – in a kind of um, very precise and commercial way to me. I use the word glib to describe it, really. It it grabs at your emotions and it grabs at stereotypes and sort of, you know, like like things. It, it made me think of a commercial all the time as each part unfolded. I thought it was a PSA. Yeah, I would call it like a public yes. service Not announcement at the end. Not subtle, definitely. It's, it's in no way subtle. <laughs> and Pixar movies in general are sort of emotionally manipulative. And when yeah, you can then yeah. sort of condense them down to six minutes or whatever, it's, yeah. they're just... That's, even more. <laughs> that, that's one of my pet peeves about mm-hmm. movies generally, the ones that want to hit you over the head with the emotional mm-hmm. content that lead you up and then, then produce all sorts of devices that really hit you over the head with it. Yeah, it, it this ends with a very almost treacly sunset mm-hmm. scene. Uh, you, you're waiting for the Randy Newman uh, Pixar song to I, well, kind of I, spring I, up behind I, it. I was <laughs> hoping there would be some, some, some nasty little stinger at the end, mm-hmm. but it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, no, the Coen brothers did not make this movie. All right, so we have to take a little break here, uh, and when we do, we do hope that you will support the kind of programming you're hearing now. If you like the news every Friday, now's a great time to make a donation. Very nice people are going to tell you how to do how to make that donation and what we'd like to give back to you. This has happened before. People forget about Trump's appearance on the old Muppet show when he started talking to Elmo about gonorrhea. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and our interns are Rusty and Creaky Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Don Rickles. Subscribe to The Colin McEnroe Show on iTunes or any other podcasting platform. On Monday, we're back with The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Okay, we may not get to everything, but uh, last night at the Al Smith dinner, well, people have struggled to uh, explain how things went. This is a uh, quadrennial event, uh, and it's very customary for two presidential candidates to um, make fun of one another, make fun of themselves, do self-deprecating humor uh, in a very formal context. So this is uh, a white tie and tails kind of event. The Washington Post uh, described what had happened. Uh, The crowd turned on Donald Trump and started to boo, something that simply doesn't happen at lavish chair 
charity dinners at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The face of one of the guests sitting on the stage behind him was suddenly struck with horror. Uh, the New York Times said that by the end, facing cascading and uncomfortable jeers from a crowd full of white ties and gowns, Trump had called Hillary Clinton Catholic-hating, so corrupt and potentially jail-bound in a prospective Trump administration. I don't know who they're angry at, Hillary, you or I, Trump said sheepishly from the dais, turning to his opponent amid the, amid the heckling. It seemed clear to everyone else. Mr. Trump was being booed at a charity dinner. So this is the Alfred E. Smith Memorial Foundation Dinner in Manhattan. Uh, it is a Catholic cause, hence that. We'll just, we're just going to play just a, uh, a minute or so of what, the, what that sounded like last night. Michelle Obama gives a speech, and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. They think she's absolutely great. My wife, Melania, gives the exact same speech. And people get on her case. And I don't get it. Hillary believes that it's vital to deceive the people by having one public policy and a totally different policy in private. That's okay. I don't know who they're angry at, Hillary. You're right. For example, here she is tonight in public, pretending not to hate Catholics. Donald, after listening to your speech, I will also enjoy listening to Mike Pence deny that you ever gave it. <laughs> People look at the Statue of Liberty and they see a proud symbol of our history as a nation of immigrants, a beacon of hope for people around the world. Donald looks at the Statue of Liberty and sees a four. <laughs> Maybe a five if she loses the torch and tablet and changes her hair. All right, so, um, Teresa, uh, you're going to lead this off. Uh, I know that you remember the White House Correspondents' Dinner in, I think, 2011, where both Barack Obama and Seth Meyers uh, did a similar number on Donald Trump, and it seemed to make him very unhappy. He seemed unhappy again last night, although also puzzled, I think, why as to why his somewhat darker strain of humor wasn't uh, winning accolades. Yeah, it's funny. Before I even watched the sort of roundup video of the jokes this morning, yesterday on NPR, I heard them talking about um, the, about the dinner in general. And they the joke that stood out for me from the from the last election was Obama making a joke about how Mitt is actually Romney's middle name, and he said, "I wish I could use my middle name," you know, and. He, and they were making the point that this is sort of lighthearted, self-deprecating humor. It's not a time to attack your opponent. It's it's not even as harsh as the correspondence dinner. And clearly Trump did – he didn't get that, but I also think he's incapable of not sounding like he's attacking somebody. It's just, it, just a byproduct of his speech patterns and his cadence and his sort of awful accent that he just always sounds like he's being meaner than he might even intend to be at that moment. I don't know, James. I, I listen to him these days and I see him and I see this guy who's kind of hitting a wall, too. I mean, I, I went back and looked at a lot of his rally speeches where he's incredibly animated. Of course, he's in front of a different group of people, people who are uh, very worshipful and unquestioning of him. It, and, and it seems to me one of the other reads he didn't make right. It's kind of like Irving Berlin explained, I just got an invitation through the mail for top hat, white tie and tails. That's a signal to you, right? <laughs> if you're in white tie and tails, you're not going to do your rally speech. Right. I, I, it really is extraordinary. 
I mean, I think he's a really uh, uh, an extraordinary personality for his misreading of self, really, and how he expresses himself. I, I mean, I it it. It's extraordinary to watch, and uh, as Teresa was saying, the cadence of his voice and the the sneering and the sort of it 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 bespeaks a very sort of like uh, a, an incredible insecurity, really, an incredible lack of a self image, and an inability to see himself relating to others in any way. And so the only way is to sort of rabble rouse and get a crowd, uh, you know, a crowd of fans who just want to hear him yell at immigrants or Muslims or, you know, do something like a circus performance. But uh, the other side of this was the extraordinary thing of I'd love to have been in on the planning meetings of the Al Smith dinner. (laughs) I mean, what exactly were they expecting? (laughs) Just the tradition they were sticking to. Well, Kate, you know, people use humor all kinds of different ways. But one of the ways humor gets used is a way of safely releasing aggressions. Um, You know, that you can maybe say something that was a little bit on your mind, but if you say it in a funny enough way, uh, it'll float past with less damage. I think one of the problems here is these two people really do hate each other at this point. You know, I mean, whatever it is that they're getting off their chest or out of their systems, it's super, super toxic by now. Yes, and, and you know, Donald Trump just calls people's, people names. He attacks people. And, and to say that Hillary Clinton is anti-Catholic in front of the cardinal, it just seemed like as, you know, to... to uh, uh, it just seems like he didn't know where he was or what his uh, audience is. It seems like he's unaware that Catholics are uh, an immigrant group who were hated and had a very tough time in New York. Uh, all I can say is I've heard uh, Barack Hussein Obama tell a joke and Donald Trump is no Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> well, I, I actually think that Trump you know, is a person who went to school from a very early age on the cadences of comedians. And when when he's successful, he does actually sound a lot like Don Rickles. Um, but he didn't sound that way last night. And, and I think the other thing was he was assuming that people knew quite a bit more than people actually do know. The, the hating Catholics joke is based on something that's in WikiLeaks. It's not based on something in WikiLeaks that Hillary Clinton ever said. But there are some people uh, within her network who are saying kind of disparaging stuff about the authoritarian nature of Catholics and, and how they seem to be people who are Catholics, maybe they function better in that kind of environment. It's stuff that you would rather not have had come out from any of your associates. But the notion that everybody sitting there would even know that, would even understand what Donald Trump was referring to, uh, I, I think is uh, is fanciful. Um, Teresa, just very quickly, I want to just go back to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, because we do know, I mean, there's this whole theory, right, that the reason he wound up running for real, for serious, was he just didn't like the way he'd been played that night. I don't know whether that's true. But there is a way in which he felt damaged in a way that he wasn't comfortable with. Right. Well, so we saw the extension of that last week after uh, Alec uh, Baldwin's most recent impression of him on SNL, where Trump just lost it on a Twitter rant and, you know, called it a hit job and said it was a bad impression, which, of course, it's not at all. And you can make fun of Trump for the things he embraces about himself, the image he puts out there. You're not going to. You're not going to hurt him by calling him a rich plutocrat. You're going to hurt him 
by insinuating that he's not as rich as he really is and he's going to lose his mind about it, which yeah. Hillary did in this in at the dinner last night. She made a joke about Michael Bloomberg being there and wishing he was speaking so they could, they could hear from a real billionaire or something like that. Right. And, you know, he doesn't have it seems like he's got this entire side of himself. You know, we all know when you're joking around with your friends or something, you can make fun of them about this, but you don't go there because that's the thing they're sensitive about. Well, Donald Trump has this entire enormous treasure trove of things that you can't go there with him about without him losing it. And so, um, you know, at this point, he's in such a a spiral that... um, (laughs) I think the dinner really just may have pushed him over the edge. We're, we're going to have to go on to endorsements. I will just say quickly that there's another rule about these dinners, which is you have to laugh sooner and louder and harder than anybody else in the room at, um, about a joke, at a joke that's about you. Um, Hillary Clinton knows this rule. If you see all the cutaways, she's putting her head back and laughing, I'm, I'm sure, completely and <laughs> sincerely uh, at all this stuff. He doesn't know that rule. He's sitting there for the most. The only joke that he laughed at, apparently, was uh, the one about uh, Hillary being picked up in a hearse. She made some joke about Donald sent me a, sent a car for me tonight. It was a hearse. He, he laughed at that one. Uh, all right. It's time to endorse things uh, and things that will probably uh, lift your spirits after that conversation. Uh, James, what have you got for us? Well, there's a great organization in Willimantic. I mentioned some years ago, I think, that is having a festival tomorrow, uh, I think starting at noon in Willimantic called Click. Uh, clickwillimantic.com is the website. Um, it's uh, You can read all about it and see how to get there. Um, it's basically a commercial kitchen that is available to farmers and uh, to uh, people who want to be able to sell their goods in stores. So they have to be prepared in commercial kitchens. And it's an extraordinary element of the community, a new element of the community that, that I think is really great. It makes it possible for all sorts of products, locally sourced, local uh, local talents, bakers, and all kinds of people. So it's a great place to visit, clickwillimantic.com. Um, and one other thing, uh, there's a magnificent masterpiece at Cine Studios starting on Sunday, uh, Akira Kurosawa's Run, mm. which is playing in a 4K restoration. We're playing it through Tuesday. All right. Uh, it's a retelling of King Lear. Um, sort of, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, Kate, what have you got for us? All right. Since I'm live from New York, I'll tell you, I came down here to attend the 20th anniversary of the Cave Canem Foundation. And that is the, um, it's called the Home for Black Poetry. It's an organization that supports uh, African-American and self-defined black poets. And listeners will know that the outgoing director, Allison Myers, was the director of the Sunken Garden uh, Poetry Festival for a number of years. And the organization really has changed uh, um, the face of American poetry. And people can find uh, more about it online at caveconum.org. All right. The, um, I'm gonna, we're just going to run out of time here, Kate, so I'm going to throw it over to Teresa. Um, I just watched a show on Amazon called Fleabag. It's a six-episode BBC. I'm not sure if it's BBC, but it's British show. And it's a sort of a ge- generic millennial struggling in London kind of story, but it's it's much different. She's It's dark. It's about grief. It's about so many other things. Um, and it's also really funny. So watch it. 
Um, we were going to have a longer conversation about the word nasty, which kind of got uh, ignited uh, as a result uh, of the last debate. Uh, so I am going to recommend and uh, endorse the dancing of Janet Jackson. Um, I've never liked that phrase that the whole idea about uh, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in high heels because she didn't. Right. Fred Astaire did all this incredible stuff, dancing with hat racks and up and down the sides of walls. But Janet Jackson had did amazing dancing frequently in high heels while these uh, other male dancers were in actual dance shoes. So her dancing in Nasty in this Jerome uh, uh, Robbins-style choreography with these really, really good young male dancers is very tight and spectacular. I would also just uh, uh, endorse my own personal favorite. The dancing isn't as great in the 1990 video Escapade, but it's got that great Terry Lewis, Jimmy Jam groove coupled with this kind of Burning Man festival visual style. Uh, The virtuosic dancing isn't quite there the way it is in Nasty, but Janet is especially beautiful and radiant. So those are all things you can very easily find online. I also want to quickly endorse George H.W. Bush's letter to Bill Clinton. You can also find this online. And we're worried about a peaceful and orderly transition of power. Um, George H.W. Bush left this remarkable handwritten letter for Bill Clinton to find when he got uh, to the Oval Office. And it really does say all of the things that we want somebody to say. So uh, look it up online. Very easy to find. Uh, All right. I want to thank very much Kate Russian from the NPR studios in New York uh, and here from Sydney studio, James Hanley, Teresa Kramer, uh, and also everybody who worked on this show. People are coming on once again. They're going to talk to you about supporting this radio station and supporting this show. If you like the news, if you enjoy visiting with us every Friday, it would be great if you could support us. So uh, please do that. They will tell you what number to call. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, and we'll see you on Monday. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, getting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. Here lies Kion Wolf, devoted producer, loving partner, sister, daughter, nasty woman.